Hey there, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're so glad you joined us today. Have you ever had feelings that you didn't know how to express to God or to someone else? We've got good news. There's a whole book of the Bible that gives language to the deepest, rawest feelings that we have, and it's the book of Psalms. The rest of the Bible is God's words to you. The Psalms are your words to God. We pray that this message blesses you today. And if you're looking for more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. You guys are in the series on the Psalms, and uh, I love the Psalms, so dear to my heart. Um, Of course, it is the prayer book that Jesus himself learned to pray from. And of course, it has uh, also been so uh, instrumental in my own life. And uh, I understand the goal of this series is to improve your prayer life. How's it going? Are you taking it to heart? <laughs> Are you starting to learn to just draw from these amazing poetic songs to improve your own prayer life? And a lot of people think of the Psalms as just sort of this random collection of Psalms, um, but it's not... Uh, It is meticulously put together. Every single psalm specifically put in the order that it is put. And uh, it's meant to really retell the Bible story through poetic songs. And the first two psalms form an introduction, um, kind of a reflection on the foundational story in the Bible from chapters 2 and 3 of Genesis. Also a reflection on God's promise to David of a messianic king to come from his line. And then the, uh, the final five psalms just formed this climactic ending of praise where all of creation is praising uh, God. And the psalms in between are actually organized into five books to mimic the Torah. The Torah was given to teach people, God's people, how to be faithful. And so these, the psalms are given to teach God's people how to pray as they seek to be faithful to God. And so these, that, those, these, these, the, the Psalms really take us through the whole biblical story of God's covenant faithfulness, hope in the messianic kingdom, failure in exile, renewed hope, and then a summons for all the nations to come and worship this king. And um, there are basically two kinds of Psalms, and I know you can expand that number if you want to get more nuanced, but there's basically two kinds, praise and lament, praise Psalms, Psalms that Uh, express adoration and gratitude and praise to God, and then lament psalms, psalms that complain to God about the bad things happening in the world. And both types of psalms are actually in every single book of the psalms, but the ratio of lament is higher in the early books, and the ratio of praise is higher in the later books. And I think both the mix and this shift from lament to praise, it really tells us something important about the nature of prayer. They teach us that on the one hand, we shouldn't ignore our pain. And then on the other hand, we shouldn't let our pain define the meaning of our lives. I love this quote from John Golden Gay. Should be up on the screen here. The Psalms are spirit-approved examples of how spirit-filled people pray and praise God in a world full of sin, evil, and death, holding fast their hope and trust that God is at work and will have the final word. Isn't that awesome? And we still live in this tension. Even though Jesus has come, he came and he's accomplished the means of salvation to reconcile us to God. We can receive forgiveness. 
And now we're kind of in stage two, proclaiming that message to the whole world. And we're still waiting for that day when he will appear once again. And so we live in this tension. And Jesus himself said, during this time, we will face chaos and darkness and evil. And we have to learn how to find peace in him in the midst of this. So today we're going to look at Psalm 62. It's sometimes referred to as the prayer of silent trust. And so I want to just kind of walk us through this psalm this morning, going to get a sense of it. And then as we do, I want to take a deeper dive into faith. Like, what is it? And I want to share with you three levels of faith or the journey we kind of take to a more mature faith in which we have an inner peace and confidence. Let's read Psalm 62. And you can just, you can just listen. I didn't put it up on the slides or anything. My soul waits in silence for God only. From him is my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I will not be greatly shaken. How long will you assail a man that you may murder him, all of you? Like a leaning wall, like a tottering fence. They have counseled only to thrust him down from his high position. They delight in falsehood. They bless with their mouth, but inwardly they curse. My soul, wait in silence for God only, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be shaken. On God, my salvation and my glory rest. The rock of my strength, my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Men of low degree are only vanity and men of rank are a lie. And the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than breath. Do not trust in oppression. Do not vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, don't set your heart upon them. Once God has spoken, twice I heard this, that power belongs to God and loving kindness is yours, O Lord, for you recompense a man according to his work. Lord of the Lord, amen. Father, we just thank you for this time again that we have together. Lord, I just pray that your word would inspire us, encourage us, strengthen us by the power of your Holy Spirit. If you could bottle up your inner state of being, like, like who you are on the inside, if you could bottle it up and give it to someone else, would they want it? And in a sense... This really is what Jesus is offering us. He's offering us the gift of eternal life. And when Jesus talks about the gift of eternal life, he's not just talking about the length of life that you live. He's talking about the quality of the life that you live. He came to give you like his inner life as a gift. In John 15, Jesus didn't say, abide in me so that you can live forever. He said, Abide in me so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Living forever is only a gift if the quality of your inner life is worth living forever. This is why after God exiled Adam and Eve from the garden, he stationed cherubim with flaming swords at the entrance so that they couldn't get back in 
It wasn't a punishment. It was a mercy that they would not eat of the tree of life and live forever in their fallen state. Okay, so let's, let's walk through this Psalm 62. Opening lines, have it up here. Now, um, in Hebrew, it literally reads something more like, only toward God is my spirit silent, or only toward God is my inner being quiet. And so this, this poem is really about, um, it's about trusting God, uh, but it's using the image of silence or quiet or calm. And silence is actually a very unusual way in the scriptures to talk about trusting God. Most of the times it's, we're told to trust God with like, you know, make, make a, loud a loud noise type thing. And for me, this, this silence in this poem, it's, it's an image of the heart at rest. It's like a picture of this inner peace, this um, inner confidence we have that everything will be okay. And David actually never speaks to God in this psalm. No requests, no pleading, no supplications, just silent trust. Instead, he speaks to himself and he speaks to others to exhort them to trust in God. Get to the next few lines here. And we find out that the reason why David trusts God is because he trusts in God's character. God's the rock, my salvation, my stronghold. These are very profound images that go all the way back to the very first pages of the Bible. And they're images that convey both the power of God and the love of God. Not only is God extraordinarily powerful, but he uses his power not for self-aggrandizement, but to help the weak, to free the oppressed, to lift up the lowly. And so unlike his enemies who want to kick a man when he's down, God comes when you're down to lift you up. And in this psalm, David compares himself, he prints up to a tottering wall whose enemies come over, and when they see the wall tottering, they kick it down instead of repairing it. And the world can be like that. People can let you down in your moment of need. Or worse, take advantage of your misfortune, right? The world is just full of chaos and darkness and spiritual forces of evil. Sometimes life punches you in the gut, and while you're still reeling and disoriented, it gives you an uppercut to the jaw. But God is not like that. A broken reed he will not crush. A smoldering wick he will not put out. He's closest to us. He's most attentive to us in our moments of deepest need, right? In order to lift us up, to clean off the dirt, to mend the wounds, give us renewed strength for the journey ahead. So God, so David trusts in God because of his character. And then in verse five and six, he returns to the opening line about only before God is my, is my soul silent, except now he's not declaring it, he's saying it to himself. Have you ever noticed how much easier it is to give advice to others than to take your own advice? Right? How much easier it is to tell others to trust God in their trial 
than to trust God in your trial? My wife will often remind me of things I said in the sermon. To which I usually respond, don't use my words against me. Except, except she's right, of course, right? Like, like, I need to tell myself what I tell others. I have a very dear friend, um, Veronica. She's my Jamaican sister, I call her. And she has this saying, I preach myself happy. I preach myself happy. Where did she learn that? She learned it from Psalms like this. And so what David declared in verse one, in verse one, he now says it to himself in verse six. And then as you go on, verse eight, David returns again to that same opening line, except now he's telling it to, to other people. Trust in God. Pour out your hearts to him. You know, the most important time to trust in God are the times when the temptations not to are the greatest. As John Golden Gay says, any fool can trust God when there is no pressure. Right? And so the silent trust in this psalm is, uh, is not the kind like you experience when you go on a silent retreat where everything is designed to make it as easy as possible for you to enjoy silence before God. No, this is like put you in a small turboprop plane, send you into a thunderstorm and say, learn how to be quietly trusting God, (laughs) right? This is Jesus sleeping in the boat in the middle of a storm when all of the disciples are screaming, we're all going to die. Is that even possible to do that? Well, it was for Jesus. And like, he seems to think that he can do it for us as well. Then when you move on in the psalm, Psalm uh, verses 9 and 10, um, he, David's using this amazing image of breath on scales. And man, I, I wish I had time to like unpack all the ideas that are just smushed into this image. Um, but, you know, time constraints, the curse for preachers, the blessing for congregations. <laughs> um, but he uses this word breath. Uh, sometimes it's translated vapor. It's, it's used throughout the book of Ecclesiastes as a metaphor for the brevity of life. Life, life is actually quite short in the context of eternity. Um, and so ultimately, I think David's point here is just to, just to broaden our perspective. You know, like life is too short to get caught up uh, in worry and anxiety It really is those who trust in God, those who trust in Jesus really do have a secure future. Those who don't, don't. don't. And so it gives us a little bit of perspective uh, as well. And then we get into verse 10 and David says, therefore do not put your trust in that which cannot truly deliver life to you. Do not put your trust in that which really can't deliver life to you. Don't, Don't set your heart upon it. Don't let your heart, in other words, get attached to false sources of life. And I've already come to believe, um, as so many others before me have, um, that fear, I think, I think fear really is at the root of so, so many of our spiritual problems. As long as we need life or our life to go a certain way, in order to be happy, and let's be honest, like we all 
have some kind of plan or desires or intentions for like how we would like our life to go, right? And fear and anxiety is mostly about those plans or desires or intentions not happening. And as long as we have an attachment to those desires, as long as you have that fear, you will, despite your best intentions, act in unloving ways towards other people. Towards anyone or anything that just gets in the way of your happiness. And so discipleship to Jesus, it really does become this journey of moving from fear to faith so that we can grow in love. Because that's the ultimate call to be a disciple of Jesus, to love God and to love others. Jesus said it this way in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, we need to move from a place of anxiety and worry about life to a a life of deep, genuine, peaceful trust in God. Then we get to the very end, and David um, concludes with this kind of poetic proverb. And he says this, basically, he says, listen, you can trust God because God is powerful and faithful and will meet out to every person what they deserve. Isn't that, isn't that kind of interesting? The idea that God gives us what we deserve, it can seem kind of odd to us as Christians because, like, we've had it ingrained in us that the gospel, at the heart of the gospel, is that God doesn't give us what we deserve. It's an act of mercy and of, of, of grace. And, of course, of course, that is true. Um, but we shouldn't take the idea that God gives us what we don't deserve to begin to pervert the gospel itself. And um, the gospel is not just an announcement. At its, at its heart, it's an announcement of good news, right? But, but with that announcement of good news is an invitation to put your trust in the one in whom it's good news about. This is good news about who Jesus is and what he's done for us. But the very announcement by nature is an invitation now to put your trust, put your trust in Jesus. And so what David is saying here is that, listen, God is powerful. He's also very committed. And so God uses his power for the benefit of those he's committed to. Who is God committed to? Well, he's committed to those who trust him. He's powerful, and he's going to use his power for the benefit of those who trust him. Therefore, trust God. All right. So um, that's kind of the psalm. This is kind of what David, this is kind of this beautiful prayer that David has put together uh, to kind of express this idea of this, of this inner peace, this silent trust in God. And he says it to himself, or he preaches to himself, or he preaches to others. Um, I want to just take a moment now. I want to take a little deeper dive uh, into, into faith. Like, like, what exactly is faith? And, and what is it to, like, mature in faith so that we can have this kind of inner, uh, inner peace? Okay, so let's just look at that word for a second. Faith, in Greek, it's the word pistis. And it really, um, it really is a very uh, rich word that, that combines a lot of different ideas. So it has the idea of faith in it, um, belief, uh, trust. Trust is one of my favorite words. Uh, to really describe faith, uh, confidence. That's probably my second favorite word to describe faith, confidence. 
um, reliance, allegiance, uh, faithfulness. The idea is that because of our trust and our confidence in God, it produces within us an allegiance to him and a faithfulness back to him. That's kind of the idea that this word's trying to capture. And uh, to me, it's um, like faith is this confidence that is grounded in reality. And it's not like usually how people think about faith. For a lot of people, like faith is what happens um, when you don't really know why. You don't, you don't have an explanation. You just, just, you, you just believe it. It's sort of like that uh, little kid who keeps asking why until you run out of answers and you're like, because that's just the way it is. And for a lot of people, like, faith becomes that place of, I don't know, I just believe it. And that's, like, nothing like um, the biblical authors, the way in which they speak about faith. Faith is not a blind leap into the dark. Faith is not believing something without evidence. To the contrary, faith is trusting something because of evidence. I love this quote from Elton um, Trueblood. He says, faith is not belief without proof. It is trust without reservations. Faith's not a feeling, though it has an emotional component. Faith is not just believing the right doctrines about God, although that's essential. Let me try to give you um, kind of a simple, maybe it's a silly example of of faith, but hopefully it kind of illustrates Um, The point I'm trying to make, Um, in a few weeks, or at least I was going to in a few weeks, I was going to be getting on a plane to fly to Israel. Not so sure about those plans at this moment, but uh, I have a ticket, and uh, it was my intent to get on that that plane. And the reason why I got on a plane to fly when I I travel um, is because I have faith. I have faith. I have confidence. I have confidence um, in the engineers who designed the plane. I have confidence in the mechanics who maintain it. I have confidence in the pilot who flies it. I have confidence in the air traffic system that coordinates everything. And so I have, I have evidence, including personal experience, on which my confidence is based. Right? Now, if I had no faith in the pilot or if I had no faith in the plane, I would not get on that plane. There's nothing you could do to get me on a plane that I didn't have any kind of confidence or faith in. If I had a little bit of faith, I might get on the plane, but I'd be like white knuckling it the whole time, like sweating and just praying with no sense of peace until that plane is back down on the ground. But I have a lot of confidence in the plane. When I get on a plane, uh, it's great. I'm going to take a nap. I'm going to do some reading. I'm going to watch a movie. Uh, even if there's turbulence, I don't really care. It's not a big deal. Doesn't, you know, it might be inconvenient. doesn't shake my confidence at all because I have faith. That's the idea of faith. Faith is this idea of having confidence based on some kind of evidence, right? So biblical, biblical faith is a bedrock confidence that everything will be okay, even when everything is not okay, because God is the ultimate reality. I have the saying that I often like to teach people. I can be okay, even when everything and everyone around me is not okay. Now, admittedly, I do preach it a little better than I live it. Um, 
But it is, it really is a core uh, belief, if you will, that, kinda, that I kind of direct my life towards. Because it can only be true if I release my life, my need for my life to go my way. Or if I release the need for people to be the way I need them to be. It can only be true when my happiness is grounded in the reality of God's love and his faithfulness. Not my circumstances or not how other people treat me. The writer of Hebrews says this. He says, faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. In other words, God might not be seen, but he is real. He is the evidence that is unseen. His word is the evidence that is unseen. The substance of faith is this confidence. It's this inner peace. It is a quiet rest in my soul that makes it easy to obey God. And Hebrews goes on to say that those who have this confidence in God, they oftentimes do extraordinary, unusual things. They do things because of this that people who don't have this confidence wouldn't do. And so when you think about faith in God, it's really about living your life out of confidence in God's love, confidence in God's power, confidence in God's faithfulness. All right, so let's, let's talk about levels of faith. Like, like most of us don't start off at the highest level of faith, right? We, we do grow. We, we mature in our faith. And um, so I want to share with you these three levels. Or actually, this framework is actually not mine. I got it from a, someone named John Comer. But I've already found it very helpful in my own spiritual uh, development. So here it is. So level one, faith. Call it the faith of religion. And I'm, I'm not using that word religion in the negative sense of legalism or anything like that. Um, it's, it's, sort of this, it's, it's sort of like this. This is the kind of faith that says, if I blank, then God will blank. Right? If I put my faith in Jesus... God will let me into heaven when I die. If I tithe, then God will bless my finances, right? And within like evangelical or charismatic circles, uh, we might call this biblical principles for living, right? Which, by the way, are extremely helpful, okay? So this is not like don't do that. Um, but without, without genuine faith, biblical principles for living, they can become just another human attempt to engineer our lives according to the way that we want it to go while trying to use God to get us there. All right? Uh, So tithing, for example, can become a means to accomplish my goal of financial prosperity. Call this book of Proverbs level faith, right? Now listen, are biblical principles true? Yes. Are they God's wisdom? Yeah. Should we live by them? Yes. Yep. But here's what I'm saying. At some point, that formulaic approach to God will fail you. Sometimes you do the right thing 
And instead of being rewarded, you're punished. Kind of like Jesus. Sometimes God doesn't spare you from experiencing hardship or tragedy. Kind of like Jesus and all of the original apostles. And at the risk of oversimplifying, um, when this happens, you kind of have like three options. Option number one, you can step back from your faith. In biblical language, it would be like we fall away from your faith. Option number two is you can compartmentalize your faith. Like your faith life is over here. You go to church on Sunday or every other Sunday is the trend now. And then the rest of your life is over here, my career, my job, my social life, et cetera. And you end up living with this kind of dissonance that just drains you of spiritual vitality. We might, in our language, we might call this nominal Christianity. It's kind of a superficial where you kind of know the lingo, you do certain Christian practices, but you lack the real substance of Christianity, which is an inner life with Jesus of power that permeates every part of your life. And the third option when that happens is you can begin to mature in your faith and you can go to the next level. Call this desperation faith. This is the, I have no other options but God. Like you're like in miracle territory at this point. I need God to act. There's no formula by which I can compel him to act. It's just an act of grace and mercy. It's a desperate cry to Jesus, right? Have mercy on me. It's that very simple but anointed prayer, Jesus, help me. This is like Mark 9. Mark 9 is the story of the father whose son has a demon that would seize uh, his, his boy, slam him to the ground, rolling him around, foaming at the mouth. And uh, the father uh, brought him to the disciples, and they could not uh, heal him. They couldn't, they couldn't cast this demon out. And Jesus shows up, and the boy's kind of thrashing on the ground. And so Jesus asked the father, how long has this been going on? And his father responds, since his childhood, if you can do anything, please have mercy and help. There it is. There's that prayer. Jesus, help me. The faith of desperation. And of course, Jesus is like, if I can, all things are possible for him who believes. And the father uh, kind of blurts out what I think is one of the most helpful statements in the Bible. I believe, help my unbelief. I mean, does that not like capture how we feel sometimes? It's like, yeah, I believe Jesus. That's why I'm coming to you. And he's like, all things are possible for him who believes. And you're like, uh, yeah, I think I'm going to need some help to get there. Right? It's like, I, am, I have confidence that Jesus heals. I'm, I struggle a little bit. Is, is he going to heal me? Or is he going to pray the person, heal the person I'm praying for? Help my unbelief. I believe, but help my unbelief. And this level of faith really requires that you move uh, beyond just biblical principles and step into the uncertain, right? John Wimber famously said, faith is spelled R-I-S-K, right? Uh, This level of faith is where the power of God really starts to get released in your life. And I know that statement makes me uncomfortable as well at times. 
But it's true. You just can't ignore what Jesus said and what some of the biblical authors taught. And it's one of the things that I think the Word of Faith movement um, really has helped kind of recapture the idea that faith is key to releasing the power of God in your life. Right? I know there's some issues, and my concern is not so much what they're teaching on faith. Uh, where I get concerned is oftentimes uh, the lack of additional theology uh, to deal with what do you do when the miracle doesn't come? What do you do when the breakthrough you're believing God for doesn't happen? And without theology to deal with that, people oftentimes fall back on blaming it on faith, a lack of faith. And that might not be true. And if that's not true and you tell someone that, that's cruel and very painful to do that thing. So we shouldn't do that. There's an even higher level of faith. I wouldn't call it the faith of surrender. The faith of surrender is when you are not believing God for an outcome. You're just believing God. Full stop. This is Paul waiting in prison for a verdict. Will he live or will he be beheaded? And Paul responds, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And then he goes on to say, my only prayer is that Christ would be glorified in my body, whether through life or for death. Come on, like who, who prays like that? <laughs> I don't remember the last time I was in a prayer meeting and someone prayed like that. I'm just going to be honest with you, right? This is Job sitting in silence after saying, you know what? My eyes have seen the Lord. I take back every stupid thing I said. I repent in dust and ashes. And then just silence. You are God. I am not. I don't get it. I think I'll just be quiet and listen to you. This is Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but your will be done. Of all the stories of Jesus, this is one of the most fascinating to me. Without Gethsemane, we'd have a very different picture of who Jesus is. Right? This is Jesus expressing a different desire than what God wants. This is Jesus asking for another way. This is Jesus saying yes to God when God just said no to him. And it's not like Jesus was just discovering for the first time that God's plan included his death. Like he was the only one who understood that was how it was supposed to go. Yet when the time comes... He's deeply troubled and distressed to the point of sweating bloods, you know, drops of blood. And we're not told exactly like what. There's a lot of different things that could probably cause that level of stress at that moment. But, but it doesn't really matter. Here's the point. The point of that story is that even Jesus had to pray the prayer of surrender. And from the moment he prays, your will be done. He returns to the calm, confident, in-charge Jesus that we are accustomed to. This is that place of just complete surrender to God and trust that creates this inner peace, this inner confidence, this inner strength. It's actually part of the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Your will be done. Your kingdom come. Now listen. There is nothing wrong with wanting a happy life. There is nothing wrong with praying for specific outcomes. The Bible's full of those kind of prayers. 
But what do you do when the outcome you want is not the outcome you will get? The problem is when we are emotionally attached to particular outcomes as the means to our happiness. And so someone once said, our anxieties reveal our attachments. What you worry about, what keeps you up at night, what you constantly think about, they often reveal what you think you need in order to be And in biblical language, these attachments are idols. Something you need, whether a thing or a person, in order to be happy. The Bible says that our idols promise us peace and happiness, but they deliver anxiety and misery. Because here's the deal. All of our attachments can and will eventually be stripped from us. If not by some other cause, by old age and death. <laughs> Aren't you glad you came to church to be encouraged this morning? <laughs> I love this quote from John Mark uh, Comer. He says this. He says, the paradox of Jesus' teaching, as long as you need your life to go a certain way to be happy and at peace, you will never be happy and at peace. <laughs> Right, And so the journey to follow Jesus, it, it does. It, it really becomes this journey that, you know, there's just certain desires that we just shouldn't have. They just need to be burned, be burned away. away. Uh, but even with the good desires, they need to be reordered. They need to be reordered in such a way that love for God and love for our neighbor rise to the top. And that's actually what freedom in Christ looks like. It's like all of our other attachments are subordinated to one attachment, Jesus himself. And in that place, we get free. We're free from fear. We're free from anxiety. Our joy is no longer held captive to our circumstances or how other people treat us. I can be okay when everything and everyone around me is not okay. All right, why don't we invite the uh, worship team to come back up. Um, see if we can't uh, land this plane, so to speak. Let me just, uh, let me. <laughs> I was told 10.15. You guys are nice. Um, do you guys remember uh, the famous story of Elijah the prophet? Uh, he has this incredible confrontation um, with the false prophets of Baal uh, on top of Mount Carmel. And he is so energized by this spectacular demonstration of God's power. This is the story where the false prophets, he, Elijah challenges them to a competition, basically like whose God you know, can answer and uh, you know, with fire from heaven and the false prophets are dancing and cutting themselves and doing all kinds of things. And Elijah's just mocking them and teasing them. Nothing's happening. And then when it comes time for Elijah, he just, you know, he makes an altar, covers it in water, you know, puts wood and covers it in the water and just prays a simple prayer. And suddenly fire from heaven comes down. And uh, he's so energized by this experience that he, he, he pretty much runs a marathon. 300 years before it was even invented by Greece. And 
um, I think what's going on in this story is, is he, he fully expected, he fully expected that this event would be a catalyst for revival in Israel, except it wasn't. And instead of a revival starting and instead of the leaders repenting, Jezebel, who's the, who's the queen of Israel at this point, threatens to kill him. And he's so discouraged that he travels to Mount Sinai, the place where Moses met with God on the mountaintop. And when Moses met with God on the mountaintop, there was fire. There was an earthquake. The mountain shook because of an earthquake. And so Elijah's going back to this place where God met Moses. He wants to experience the God of fire and earthquake. He wants to kind of reboot the covenant. Who knows? Maybe God will once again open up the earth and swallow his enemies. And there was a fire and there was an earthquake, except God wasn't in either one of those. After the fire and the earthquake, there was silence. It was calm. And it says God was in the silence. God filled the silence. And I think Elijah was really being invited by God into something much higher at this point. Um, when Moses was set apart and he was the prophet that all other prophets were to be like. Um, what, what set Moses apart more than anything was his intercession. Uh, you may remember the story when the people uh, sinned horribly, the golden calf and some other incidences and Moses went up on the mountain to pray for the people of God. And God is like, you know what? I think I'm done with them. Tell you what, I'm gonna take you, Moses, and we're gonna start over with you. And Moses says no. And he intercedes for the people of God who are in rebellion. And he offers his own life in exchange for the people. Think about that. This is the thing that set Moses apart. This is the thing that made him the prophet all of the prophets were to be like. This is the thing that made Jesus the new Moses. Now God ends up saying, thank you, but no, I'm not gonna take you up on that offer. But he does, he does forgive the people and renew his covenant. And I think Elijah was being invited into that same place, this place of the silence before God, this place of trust before God, this place that God is gonna get the last word and so I'm going to intercede. I'm going to pray and I'm going to stand in the gap. And, um, and in that story, it appears that that's not what Elijah wanted to do. Elijah wanted the God of fire and earthquake who would open up the earth and swallow his enemies. And so God actually says, thank you for your service, but you're now being relieved of your duties. Go back home and anoint your successors. There's something about this silence. There's something about this quiet place of trust and rest in God. 
no matter what it looks like on the outside, this confidence that God will indeed get the last word. And it invites us into that place of intercession. Not just a prayer meeting, but I'm talking about a life of intercession where we stand in the gap. Instead of letting the darkness cause us to fall away or to question our trust for God, our trust for God causes us to go into the darkness and to stand in that place, knowing that regardless of what we're seeing, somehow the God of all power, the God of love is gonna get the last word in that place. And I would encourage you actually, you know, even, even, even the practice of silence itself, it's been a long Christian tradition it's one of the spiritual disciplines, if you will, that Christians have practiced for hundreds, thousands of years is actually the practice of silence. And um, if you ever try it, where you just try to get yourself quiet before God, you'll discover it's not easy. You'll discover that the easiest part of getting quiet before God is turning all of the external noise off. But as soon as you do, you'll discover how loud the internal noise Margaret Gunther uh, wrote a wonderful book um, about silence before God. And she says, the silence of God demands our surrender. It demands that we shut up and listen. It demands that we let down all our defenses, take off our mask, subdue our other desires. It demands we fend off all distractions and pay attention to God and God alone. And in that place, God often fills with his presence. That place of silent trust is oftentimes the place where God's presence fills. Well, that about wraps it up for today. We pray that today's message encouraged you. And if you would like more information or just to contact us, go to our website at newriverchurch.org.